Here's a thought. How about if you all stand back up? And grab, um, stand back up and grab a Bible if you have one. I know you were just settling into your seats, but bear the burden. Um, if there's a Bible in the pew rack or you brought one with you, just grab it, because here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I want you to open it up and hold it out in front of you, and I'm going to pray with you right now that God's Word would be alive to us this morning. So I'm going to ask you with one hand to hold your Bible, and if you're able to, put another hand on top of it. I'm going to pray externally, you pray internally, and let's ask God to bring it. All right. Father, we come before you this morning recognizing that in the moment that we utter your name, we are ushered right into the throne room. Just like Isaiah, God, we stand before you and you hear the hearts of your people. We hold in our hand your written word. And you said that you have breathed life into it. Father, to the degree that it's sharper than a surgeon's scalpel because it can divide our thoughts. It can show us what's really going on in our heart. And there is no instrument like that on earth because it's given from from you for a gift from heaven for us. God, what we ask this morning is that you would cause yourself to be powerful in the midst of this teaching. That you would help us to understand more of your nature and character Perhaps, Father, that you would invade our life in a way that we've never encountered you before. So we hold these Bibles out before us this morning, asking that you would speak through it. In Jesus' mighty name, amen. Go ahead and have a seat. While you have your Bible in your hand, if you'd open it up to the very first book of the Bible, to Genesis chapter 18, you're going to be where I'm at. Genesis chapter 18. Two weeks ago, I uh, started with a short little series called Wait What? And this is the second part of that leading up to the Christmas stuff that's coming. I'll explain that in a minute. Looking at some of the things that God does that seems absolutely impossible from our perspective. Things that we would think are beyond our reach. Things that some of the writers of the Bible spoke about. Let me show you a couple of those up on the screen. Job 42.2. Job said this, you can do all things, speaking of God, and no purpose of yours can be thwarted. How about this one from Jeremiah? Jeremiah 32, 17. It is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. Here's one from Jesus. Mark chapter 10. You might remember it from two weeks ago. We were talking about rich people trying to get into heaven and individuals who thought they could buy their way in. Jesus said this, All things are possible with God, God Himself, speaking about God Himself. You have a hard thing in your life this morning? Do you have an impossible situation? I bet in the moment that I asked that, it popped into your head. Because we really don't have to work too hard to dredge those things up, do we? They're right there. They live with us. They walk with us. Those really impossible circumstances... I'm not sure what it is for you. Maybe it's forgiving yourself. Maybe you know that Jesus forgave you and He died for you, but forgiving yourself seems impossible. It's just so much baggage. Maybe a hard thing for you is much simpler than that. Maybe it's just inviting a coworker to church or a friend or a neighbor, maybe a relative, just asking somebody to join you in this adventure. Maybe that's the hard thing for you. 
We're going to look at some of these hard things this morning as we look at Genesis 18. When we reach Genesis 18, we encounter an individual. And if you're not familiar with the story, his name is Abraham. He was known as Abram. And Abram was fatherless. He was a very wealthy sheik, but he was without an heir. And God, in chapter 17, tells him that he's going to have a son. And he goes to the length of actually telling him, you're not only going to have a son, Abraham, but you're going to name him Isaac. And in in that portion of Scripture, Genesis 17, God changes his name from Abram to Abraham, meaning a father of a great nation. And at the same time, he changes his wife's name, Sarai, to Sarah, meaning the princess. Now, in this setting, in in Genesis 18, Abraham and Sarah are living in the mountains. They're sitting up on top of this, this fertile plain, and they can see down into this valley below them. In the valley below them is a fertile area, two major metropolitan cities along with ten smaller cities. A big city is known as Sodom, and the other city is known as Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah sit side by side, major metropolitan areas, and Abraham and Sarah sit up on the mountain and they can look out over this area. That's in the last part of chapter 18. We're not going there this morning. We're going to this part where God encounters Abraham. Now, I understand it's the afternoon and Abraham is sitting outside his tent. He's having his siesta. It's a downtime for him and he sees in the distance three men walking towards him. So pick up with me at Genesis chapter 18 and verse 1. It says this, Now the Lord appeared to him by the oaks of Mamre while he was sitting at the tent door in the heat of the day. In in the Hebrew language, in the heat of the day uh, means the time of double or double heat or double greatness of light. I I lived in the Southwest for a while, so I know what that kind of feels like. Um, I lived in Arizona for a couple years. And Lori and I encountered regularly this, this heat around the Phoenix area 110, 112, 108 degrees. If you've been there, you know what I'm talking about. feels like somebody opened up the oven door and let the blast oven out, right? If you've been there, you know that feeling. Well, in this time of day, very few people traveled, especially at the time of Abraham, because the sun is so intense, and it bakes the desert floor, and you just don't want to be out on it. So people chill. They sit, sit down. So Abraham, in this setting, is immediately curious. Who's out walking in the heat of the day moving towards me? He's about to have what we call in theological circles a theophany. And a theophany is a God encounter. It's the only place in the Bible where you will find three individuals coming from heaven to speak with a person. And that really underscores the significance of what he's about to encounter. First of all, the announcement of Isaac being born. And second of all, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah. Let's move forward into verse 2. When he lifted up his eyes and looked, behold, three men were standing opposite him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them and bowed himself to the earth and said, My Lord, if now I have found favor in your sight, please do not pass your servant by. Now, it doesn't say that there, but I believe this is a pre-incarnate arrival of Jesus. Prior to the arrival of Jesus, born as a baby, this is a pre-incarnate arrival of Jesus, and I'll explain that in just a few minutes. You see it in Genesis 18, verse 1, because Moses just said for us, the Lord appeared to him. You see that capital L, capital R, capital D in your Bible in verse 1. And I see here also two of his created angels. So we've got the pre-incarnate arrival of God, of Jesus, and two of the created beings, And apparently there's nothing about their appearance that sets them apart. But as he begins talking with them, he begins to realize that these visitors 
are from another realm. Now, Abraham is 99 years of age during this visit. He lives to be 175 years of age, according to the book of Genesis. But we're told here, because he's middle-aged, he can still run, all right? So he runs to meet them, and he bows to the ground. Now, in the Middle East, there's a very common way of greeting people. If you're the host of a home, you're the owner, the occupier, if you're seated when a visitor arrives, if it's an ordinary visitor, you rise to attention when someone enters your presence. But if it's someone extraordinary, let's say it's like your UPS driver, okay? Somebody whom you want to give attention to, you not only rise, but you move to them quickly. In the Middle East, they would put their hand around their waist or tap them on the shoulder and assure them that they're welcome into their home. And it's a greeting. But if it's someone of a stately level, perhaps a prince or a king or a ruler in the Middle East, it was always to the knees, to the ground, and a forehead to the ground. Try doing that with your UPS driver next time. Okay, wouldn't wouldn't that be an interesting way to greet a Domino's guy? You came with a pizza and you bow down before him. Now, this is the setting. Abraham recognizes he's got someone here of extraordinary character. We're not told that he recognizes that it's Jesus yet or the pre-incarnate arrival of God. But by verse 27, he really comes to understand that. So in verse 3, he says, My Lord, as just kind of a recognition of authority, that this is a superior being. And he breaks into this sentence, If I have found favor, please don't pass me by. This is a customary form of address in the Middle East. It's still used to this day. Matter of fact, in the 1800s, there were many people who were authors that traveled to the Middle East just to see if they could kind of match what the Bible says with, with what they experienced. World travel was becoming more common in the 1800s. So I've got the quote from one individual. His name is Josias Porter, who was there in 1865. And, and look at how similar his quote matches up with what we see in the Bible. He says this, Whenever our path led us near an encampment, as was frequently the case, we always found some active sheik sitting in his tent door, and as soon as we were within hail, we heard the earnest words of welcome. Stay, my lord, stay, pass not till thou hast eaten bread and rested under thy servant's tent. Alight and remain until thy servant prepares a feast. It was still common in the New Testament time when Jesus was on earth. He used the hospitality of the Middle East as a frequent backdrop to his teachings. So that's the setting we've got Abraham in. Let's go to verse 4. Abraham speaking here. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree, and I will bring a piece of bread that you may refresh yourselves. After that, you may go on since you have visited your servant. And they said, so do as you have said. Now, in ancient Egypt, we understand archaeologists have discovered that a very common thing, this obviously is in Israel, but in Egypt, the same practice was carried out that wealthy individuals would keep a golden bowl, pure gold, next to their door filled with fresh water so that if a visitor would stop by, they would have something so significant that they could attend to their visitor and they would use this golden bowl of water to wash their feet. I understand in some areas of India and many places in Israel, this still takes place today when a visitor, especially among the Bedouin people, comes to them, they'll wash their feet for them. Abraham according to the way I'm reading this passage, is about to wash the feet of Jesus and two of his angels. And he's carrying out this act of hospitality. He could have given this task to any one of his 300 servants. 
If you read Genesis 14, you see that Abraham has 300 employees, 300 plus. So he has a a very large corporation that he oversees, but he personally takes on this job. And he says in verse 5, I want you to refresh yourselves. In other words, literally recline on the ground with your cheek and your elbow under the shade of my tree, and I'm going to feed you. Go with me to verse 6. So Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said, Quickly prepare three measures of fine flour, knead it, and make bread cakes. Abraham also ran to the herd and took a tender and choice calf and gave it to the servant, and he hurried to prepare it. Verse 8, He took curds and milk and the calf which he had prepared and placed it before them, and he was standing by them under the tree as they ate. Now, a custom at this period of time is that women were neither seen nor heard. I'm thinking that's not the case in your household today. Right? Okay, (laughs) I'm just checking. Um, In in this case, in Bible times, women were given a much lower status, and so when male guests were entertained, they were not even allowed to come out to the realm where men were being entertained at. Women stayed inside. So Sarah is preparing bread inside this tent. Remember, it's the heat of the day. But she's working inside. Abraham has been sitting at the door, and he's asking her to prepare three measures of fine flour. Uh, just help me, let me help you uh, clarify that. Um, a measure in, in Hebrew language is a siah. A siah is a third of a bushel. Okay? He's saying a third of a bushel of fine meal times three, because there's three visitors. Each visitor is going to get a third of a bushel of a loaf of bread. How much bread do you eat in the day? Okay, I eat like a slice, maybe. So we're told a third of a bushel, and he says, I want you to knead it and, and bake it for them. So in, in a Middle East home, they always had a hearth that they kept a warm fire under. They'd make enough bread at the beginning of the day to feed the family just for the day. There was no preservatives in their bread, so they made what they need, needed for each day. So she's got this hearth, and she's going to put this fresh meal on, on the hearth and cook it. You've been to Panera's when they're baking fresh bread? Okay, you know that smell? We've got this aroma going on, fresh baked bread. And then it says in verse 7, he ran to the herd and he chose a choice calf. So they're going to put some tenderloin on the grill. Now here's what's unique about that. An offering of meat <clears throat> was not common in the middle of the day. It was a supper meal. It was never served at lunchtime. So obviously Abraham was recognizing this, these people are extraordinary. I'm going to really put it out there for him. And we're told in verse 8, he puts together curds and milk. Uh, uh, here's the image on that. Um, you like French dip sandwiches? I do. I love French dip. They give you that cup of odd juice. Dip. My wife doesn't like it. She thinks it's gross. But I love plunging that baby in there and getting that bread all soggy and eating it that way. Well, <clears throat> in the Middle East, they've, they've got this hard bread that she's baking and didn't have time to leaven. It's probably unleavened bread, so it's kind of firm. So they would put together curds and milk and stir it up into this dipping sauce, a juice. And every time they were given a piece of meat, it was laid on a piece of bread, and they would take it and plunge it into that buttery cream and then pop it in their mouth till every morsel is gone. Getting hungry? Okay, getting close to lunchtime? And now we're told in verse 8, he stands by them under the tree. This custom still observed today among the the Bedouin people. Even though he's got 300 servants, 
He can sit down and eat with them, but he chooses to stand and serve them, just putting hospitality out there. And we're told this interesting detail in verse 8, and they did eat. Now, I'm not going to go into that today, but that's amazing to me. Jesus and two of his angels are going to eat human food, physically consume, just like Jesus did after the resurrection. He ate fish with the disciples after the resurrection. He's on the shore of the beach, and they sit down to baked fish while we see him eating here again. That gives me great hope. I'm going to be eating in heaven. Cool. That's another detail, but let's move on. Verse 9, then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? And he said, there in the tent. Now, we see in that phrase that we're coming from this overview of 10,000 feet right down to -to face-to-face conversation. We're part of this first-person account now. And we find that this story has special reference to Sarah. All of a sudden, they bring her up by name. Now, I'm thinking in this moment, Abraham's mind is racing. He's thinking, how do they know my wife's name? In the Middle East, understand, it's highly unusual to inquire about a woman. And and so he responds in Hebrew in a very terse form, very abrupt, and just says, in the tent. This usually includes a gesture because he's caught by surprise. Go with me to verse 10. Now God begins to speak. He said, meaning the Lord, I will surely return to you at this time next year, and behold, Sarah, your wife, will have a son. And Sarah was listening at the tent door, which was behind him. So God's speaking directly with Abraham. Nowhere in this story are we told the moment that it, occur, that it occurs to Abraham that he's speaking with God. But I think it's right here in verse 10. I think this is the moment that he begins to understand. I'll, I'll explain why in just a minute. Let me say this. It is an incredible thing that a child is going to be born to a woman who's 90 years old. You, you, you ever seen a pregnant 90-year-old woman? Because if you are... If you've seen it, I'll just yield to that, but I've never seen it. I'm thinking most of us haven't, okay. I've never seen a man who's 100 years old father a child. I've seen 100-year-old men, but not who have fathered a child. So we've got this incredible thing going on. And God says in verse 10, at this time next year, literally it means at the time of reviving, meaning the spring, at the time when the earth is renewed, now, I'm going to assume most of you have not studied the Hebrew language, so I'm just going to fill you on a, on a, in on a detail. In English, when we speak in our Western culture, our words are very black and white. There's very little gray area with us. We mean what we say, and we say it fairly exactly. However, in the Middle East, they paint word pictures. And so the Hebrew language, especially, is full of colorful word picture type language. So when they come to something that's a specific element. They've manufactured a way to associate specific timetables so that individuals will understand what they're trying to communicate. So in this case, what we're seeing here, a very emphatic form of Hebrew construction. When God has promised something, he's enhanced it by saying, here's a timetable. Within this period of time, within one year, I'm going to do something. And then he says very specifically, and behold, a son. So he's given a specific time period and a specific promise. It's like saying this, your taxes are due. Well, that's not enough information, is it? So a governing authority issues an edict that says, your taxes are due on April 15th before midnight. 
That's essentially what's going on here. We're being given something very specific. So Sarah hears this specific timetable with a specific promise. Now, in a tent of a sheik, a wealthy sheik, there was typically a woman's apartment, a place where women of the household would stay in in the back of the tent. And they usually would hang out there together. But Sarah's not there. She finished cooking, but she didn't go to the woman's apartment. She makes her way and sneaks up to the door. And the door is just a thin partition of camel hair. And she's listening in. We're just told that in verse 10. Sarah's listening at the tent door. Go with me to verse 11. Now, Abraham and Sarah were old, advanced in age. Sarah was past childbearing. I don't know if you knew knew this, but Moses wrote the book of Genesis. Um, The things that you have here are written down from the hand of Moses. And so Moses is clarifying for us, Sarah's really old. She's so old, she's past childbearing. But Sarah has a role to play in God's plan. Even though she's got some hard circumstances in front of her, God has a plan for her. But we're told by Moses these two little impediments are hanging out there. Two little ones. Let me show you the first one. The first impediment to God's promise is just this natural, normal, biological conception is ruled out. Moses is saying, they're old. She's 89, he's 99. And then he goes one step further. Not just to say that she's old, but he says it's, it ceased to be with Sarah after the manner of women. That, that's the way the, the King James Version says it, meaning she's postmenopausal. So he's clarifying for us these impediments are pretty significant. But Sarah's got a role to play. God's got a plan, and he wants to do something even though the circumstances are hard, even though they're difficult, impossible. So it's natural for her to look at her circumstances and kind of doubt God's plan. Can can you agree with her? Would you do that in that situation? I would. I'm looking at it thinking, well, the circumstances don't allow for that. So let's see Sarah's reaction. Verse 12, Sarah laughed to herself, saying, after I have become old, shall I have pleasure, my Lord being old also? Preposterous! It just seems unimaginable, literally inconceivable. My Lord, meaning her husband, my husband is old also, but God knows her heart. And God cannot necessarily see her facial expression because she's not standing in the midst, but God can see all things, even though she's standing behind the camel hair door. And she thinks she's hiding. And so this laugh internally is just a reflection of what she believes externally. She's looking at this external reality. What's she laughing at? She's laughing at her circumstances. She's laughing at the impossibility of what he just said. So here's a question for you. Does she laugh because she doesn't believe God is able? Or does she laugh because she doesn't believe she is able? The reality is most of us fall into the second category. When we doubt God, when we recoil, when we believe circumstances are completely out of our control, they're too hard, we tend to be looking at ourselves, and our eyes are inwardly focused as opposed to focused on the one who says, I'm going to use you. See, Sarah's just like us. She's been chosen, but she doesn't believe God will use her. Why? Too much disappointment in her life. 
Age 20, no baby. Age 30, no baby. Age 40, no baby. Age 50, no baby. Age 60, age 70. God made the promise when she was 75. Hey, Abram, I'm going to change your name to Abraham. You're going to have a baby, and you're going to name him Isaac. Fifteen more years go by, and now God shows up to say, this time, next year, because I've chosen you, you're going to have that child called laughter that I promised you. Now, the natural human instinct is to say, maybe earlier, but not now. Too much pain. I'm disqualified. Too many mistakes. I've got a lifetime history here behind me. Why would God use me? And so she disqualifies herself. There's two rhetorical questions that are coming up in verse 13 and verse 14 as we end this. And the questions are asked by God himself. And they don't even need a response. They're more like statements from God. But before we go to that verse, I want to teach you a Hebrew word. It's it's this word you're going to see on the screen, palah. And it's talking about hard things, difficult, wonderful things. So when God asks the question, is anything too difficult or too hard for me? He's using this word, palah. Is anything too palah? I would be the first to say that I am amazed by the works of God. When I see the Hubble Space Telescope send back pictures to planet Earth of the works of our God in creation, it just makes me want to go, oh, man, look at the works of your hands. You see the stellar nebula that comes back on some of those images? You see them on your computer, or you hold the images in your hand in a picture? And you you would agree with what Jeremiah says. Let me remind you this verse from the beginning. Jeremiah 32, 17. It is you who have made the heavens and the earth by your great power and by your outstretched arm. Nothing is too hard for you. My natural inclination is to say, that's right, that's our God. He raised Lazarus from the dead. He could stop World War III like that. But when it comes to my own personal life, Do we give him the same biblical authority? These things that we read about on a biblical scale, we have to recognize he wants to transfer into our own personal life as well. We easily see the hand of God in the formation of the universe, but can you believe this morning that he wants to be personally involved in your life? Here's another way of asking you this question. Do you, this morning, trust God with your personal salvation? but you can't trust Him to put bread on your table? Do do you trust Him with your eternal destiny, but you can't trust Him with that bad relationship you're dealing with? Is that the reality in your life? That's where Sarah's at. She's got these circumstances around her and they're causing her to react. So in two sentences, God reminds us. He not only knows the human heart, He knows exactly future events, and he controls them. Let's look at his sentences. Verse 13 says this, And the Lord said to Abraham, Why did Sarah laugh, saying, Shall I indeed bear a child when I am so old? Can you say omniscient? You want to go do-do-do-do-do-do-do. That's kind of freaky, isn't it? God knew exactly what she was thinking. She's behind the wall of the tent. In the chambers of her heart, she's laughed. 
and yet God knows what's going on. And he not only hears the silence of Sarah's spirit, he knows the tone of her thoughts. And so he's calling her out. Here's what really should trouble us about this verse. God knows. He knows everything that we think we're doing in secret. Even what we're thinking. And he not only sees it, God calls her out on it. You ever had God call you out? I've had that happen. Moses had that happen. God got into a conversation with Moses, and Moses was pushing back, saying, I don't want to be the speaker to Pharaoh. God said, who formed your mouth, Moses? Did it to Jonah. Jonah, I'm going to have mercy on whom I'm going to have mercy. He did it to Peter. Get behind me, Satan, because he knows our heart. He knows what's really going on inside. You might think this morning, I would never challenge God. I would never question him. But when those hard things creep up, we could be just like Sarah. And that laugh might be just a kind of a bitterness seeping out. (laughs) No way, I'm disqualified. Don't ask me to go there. So here's God's second rhetorical question. comes from verse 14, part A. Is anything to palah for the Lord? And do you notice it's capital L, capital O, capital R, capital D. He's saying, Yahovah, the great I am. Is anything too hard for the great I am? Where do Sarah's disbeliefs stem from? It's kind of an obvious question. I recognize that. Well, Let's just put it out there. Where is it really coming from? It's a strong realization. It's just kind of oozing out of her, her own weakness. She's looking at her circumstances. Conception, impossible. Pregnancy at 89, no way. Why? Because she's got her eyes on herself. Look with me at verse 14, part B. God's responding again. At the appointed time, I will return to you at this time next year, and Sarah will have a son constructed in the Hebrew language so she understands it's very, very specific. Look at Sarah's response, verse 15. Sarah denied it, however, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Would it not freak you out for God to tell you what you were just thinking? I mean, just be honest. It would if somebody walked up to you and just said to you, hey, I I know what you were just thinking and told you. Of course, you're going to have this response. It would would freak you out. God just told you what your thoughts are and he's made them public. Now, Sarah seems at this point to come out from behind the tent and there's this sense of guilt and embarrassment and she's trying to cover up just like Adam and Eve in the garden. They've been confronted by God and they, they try and start covering up. What's her first impulse? Her first impulse is to attempt to deceive the very person who just told her what she was thinking. Not too smart, huh? You don't want to tell God what he was wrong about. So you're telling God you're wrong. Now, here's how I know that. This word that she uses, we're we're told that she's afraid. If you've been at New Hope any period of time, you know that I've used this word before. Yah-reh, Y-A-R-E. It was always used in association with God when someone encountered God and they were left with awesome. That's the word Yahweh. So when it says she was afraid, she was Yahweh. Awesome. He's just told me what I was thinking. 
and he's projecting what's gonna happen to me. So she knows she's just encountered God. And God says, yes, you did laugh. Uh, Let me just put some stages here for you. She lied to God. She laughed at what God said. And her non-belief appears in her laughter. And what has God said? He reproved her. That's the first step. And if you read the story further today, you'll see that Sarah never talks again. She never responds. She doesn't enter back into the conversation. Why? It's evidence of her conviction. She knows he's right. She's got nothing more to say. But what's cool about this is the conception. Within a year, she does become pregnant, and she does deliver. What's that evidence of? It's evidence of God's grace. Even though she laughed at God's promise and she lied to God, there's still evidence that God forgave her and he used her. Uh, Let me land this plane with you in case your mind is just racing into all kinds of different circumstances after you hear this so that we're all on the same page. I want to remind you of this this morning. Everything that you need, if you are a believer in Jesus Christ today, everything that you need for God to do hard things through you, for God to do impossible things is already in you. It's on the hard drive of your soul. God imprinted it upon you in the moment that you were saved. In the moment that you confess Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior in your life, we're told that the Holy Spirit was deposited into our life. And that Holy Spirit brings the power. So God wants to complete a work in us if we're willing to open ourselves up and allow Him to do that. Here's how I know that. Look with me on the screen at 2 Peter 1.3. This is what we're told. Seeing that His, meaning God's, divine power has granted to us Not some things, everything pertaining to life and godliness. He's given you the equipment. Many of us are like Sarah. We just look at the circumstances and recoil and say, not me, disqualified. I'm a believer. I'm going to heaven. Jesus died for me. But too much baggage in my life. I'm here to tell you this morning, you don't have to wait for a new anointing. You don't have to wait for some new power from heaven. You already have all that you need. The work of Jesus Christ is sufficient in your life if you just allow him to be set free. The problem is this. Many people are like Sarah. We're so externally focused. We look at the circumstances and we allow that to determine what God can do and what God cannot do. And so we're guilty of putting God in a box. That's what Sarah did this morning. So is a child from a dead womb too hard for the one who made the universe? Absolutely not. That's his question to her. What's too hard for me? Nothing is too difficult. I'm here to tell you this morning, there is no time and there is no situation and there is no circumstance in which God is not able to rescue or redeem or restore. So if you think you came in here this morning with too much baggage in your life and it's not possible for God to use you, his word tells us another story. And God cannot lie. It's not possible. He says, if I want to use you, I'm going to use you. Just be willing. So here's where I end this morning with Isaiah 40, verse 28, because it's a great statement. This man was qualified to write it, and it's a great question for us. Look at this. Do you not know 
Have you not heard? The everlasting God, the Lord, the Creator of the ends of the earth does not become weary or tired. His understanding is inscrutable. If you've never seen that word inscrutable before, it means He knows everything. And nothing that He doesn't know about you. And yet He still loves you. So here's a hard thing I'm going to ask you to do to consider for this week. It may not sound like such a hard thing to you, but for some of us, many people, it's a pretty hard thing. My understanding is that most Americans who are not active in church or rarely ever darken the doors of a church are merely waiting for someone to extend an invitation to them. I've heard person after person after person who said they've gone throughout the course of their life say, I'm just kind of waiting for a Christian to invite me. I'd like to know more. But we rarely do that. Maybe that's too hard to invite a coworker or a friend or a family member. Maybe think they're going to judge you. Would it not be cool if God used you to play a role in bringing someone into the kingdom during this Christmas season? Over the next three weeks, I'm going to be stepping into this series called Preposterous, in which we get to see this amazing story unfold of the preposterousness of our God sending the king of the universe to rescue us. It doesn't get any more preposterous than that. Yet nothing is too difficult for God. So here's the hard thing. Consider this week. Taking what you've heard this morning, translate it to your life, and bring somebody with you over the next couple weeks. Somebody whom you know that might need Jesus. Let me pray with you about that. Let's ask God to seal it in our heart. Father, your word has been put forth, and only you can determine if it's alive in our hearts. Only you know what's going on in each individual's life right now, but you are very aware of it. Father, I ask that you would take what we've looked at this morning and you would cause it to go down deep. You said your word will not return void without accomplishing the purpose for which you put it forth. And it's been put forth, so Father, we ask that you would use it to strengthen us in our walk to remind us that you are the God of the impossible and you specialize in hard circumstances. So Father, I I ask this hard thing that you would move in our hearts to allow us to offer back up to you the things that we're struggling with. Instead of looking at our circumstances, help us to look beyond those to you, the God of the circumstances. Thank you for your magnificent love for us and for sending us a Savior that we can have a personal relationship with you and we can even ask these things. So as we take this week on, Father, help us to be bold, but also to remember you said nothing is too difficult for you. Remind us, Father. Remind us, remind us, remind us. It's in the name of the magnificent King of Kings we ask this. Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, And all God's people said, Amen.